And please turn to 1 Samuel 14. 1 Samuel 14. It's a lengthy chapter, so I'll read through it as we, as we go through it together. A couple paragraphs at a time. Uh, eight to ten-year-olds, they're already gone. All right, you're gone. All right. Um, just a word while you're finishing opening to that page. Uh, the last weekend of this month will be uh, our youth winter camp, so junior high and high school through high school students, so 6th grade through 12th grade. You're invited to that. Parents, grandparents, uh, please sign the students up, your students up. Uh, we sent the link out in the weekly email, or if you don't get the weekly email, you can call the church office and sign them up. We're really looking forward to this. We've been praying about this for a while. Uh, the theme for the weekend is going to be Amazing Grace. And so I'm going to start off by preaching a message on the holy and right wrath of God. And then we're going to do three messages on the grace of God. So in light of his righteous anger and the fact that he's a just judge, we're then going to look at the fact that he's also merciful. And I just ask you to pray, even if you don't have students of that age, just as a church family, pray for those students hearing about the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. It can so often for kids be something that they know intellectually, but the, the truth hasn't regenerated their heart yet, so we're praying for regeneration to happen that weekend. So if you will, pray for us. Um, but if you're a parent, please sign your student up for that. And if you're a student, you guys are old enough, you can sign yourself up, okay? All right, so go out there and do that. Uh, while we're speaking of youth ministry, just thought you all would like to know, this Wednesday youth ministry starts again uh, at the Somerville home. We're so grateful to be there. And this Wednesday is elder night, so all six elders are going to be there and the kids are going to grill them in a Q&A, so uh, it'll be exciting times. I'm going to be the moderator, so I don't get to answer any questions. The other guys get to answer all the questions. Uh, maybe, I don't know, I might jump in to one or two. We'll see. All right, 1 Samuel 14. I've entitled this message, Tainted Victory. If you're a baseball fan, you're aware of the 2017 Houston Astros. And if they're your favorite team, sorry about this introduction. Uh, they won the world championship, but it was shown later that they cheated. They uh, had video of the signs that the Dodgers were giving, and on certain pitches, you'd hear a bang from the Houston Astros uh, dugout. They'd be hitting the trash can to let the hitter know what pitch was coming, and uh, the Houston Astros won the World Series. Won the World Series. That's what you call a tainted victory. So if someone says, who won the 2017 World Series? You kind of say, the Houston Astros, kind of with a shrug, asterisk maybe. That's similar to this passage here. Who defeated the Philistines? Was Saul a great military leader? Yes, asterisk. He did defeat the Philistines. As a matter of fact, the end of our passage, the end of this chapter, talks about his military defeats, his successes. But the rest of the chapter points out his failures. So it's interesting what we have in 1 Samuel 14. We have a leader who ends the day with, with the, the section here in 1 Samuel 14 being seen as a victorious war hero. But all throughout the passage, you see 
him make mistake after mistake after mistake. And we actually even started that last week in 1 Samuel 13. We saw him wrongly offer sacrifices. He wasn't a great day-to-day leader, but God in his grace gave Saul military victories. So that's why I call this passage tainted victory. And I'm really encouraged and helped by going through this this week and seeing the lessons that God gives to his people. You know, throughout this chapter, you're going to see Jonathan, uh, Saul's son, actually looking more like the leader Israel needs. He's the one that trusts in God. He's the one that does bold things for God. And you see Saul going through the motions of religion, but, but tripping up all along the way as it goes. So there's this contrast between Jonathan and his father Saul. And what we're meant to see is uh, the, the lessons, the leadership lessons given to the people of God. So that's going to be our outline for the morning, three leadership lessons for the people of God. And we see them in this account of Jonathan and Saul. So three leadership lessons for the people of God. And when, when I give that, I don't want anyone here in our congregation to think, well, this is a talk for leaders. As you know, the way we view leadership in this church is that all Christians are meant to be influencers in this world. We are salt. We are light in a dark world. And so even when we do our uh, bi-monthly leadership discussion, leadership meetings, we invite everyone to come to that. Some of you are fathers, some of you are mothers, some of you are friends that can help lead friends along in the Christian faith. Some of you are leaders at work, leaders on teams, leaders at school. Some of you are leaders in the church. Everyone has influence. And so when I say three lessons for leaders, everyone is to be a listener and to learn from that. Well, here's the first lesson first leadership lesson we're given, and it's in verses 1 through 23 of chapter 14. It's that faith in God brings victory. Faith in God brings victory. And that seems so cliche to us. Well, yeah, I know. Okay, how much do you trust God today? Are you trusting in all that you have in Jesus Christ today? I think there's some things to learn here from these verses. Faith in God brings victory. Notice verses 1 through 5. Jonathan is going to be shown to venture out on his own, and he and his armor-bearer achieve a military victory. So let's kind of see the setting here in verses 1 through 5. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, "'Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side.' But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron, The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other was Sena. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Now, those of you that know biblical Hebrew, you understand what's happening here. Those of you that don't, I'll explain what's happening here. What's happening is obviously that Jonathan is planning a military uh, incursion. He's got his own plan. He brings his armor bearer and it's just the two of them. Seems really unwise, doesn't it? His father Saul, really the commander of the military, doesn't even know about this. 
And even the geography, the, the, the situation in front of him, the landscape is against him. The words there, the, the names there given in verse 4, bozes, that word means slippery. So, speaking of the rock formation, the structure there, you, you know, when you go hiking maybe around the Granite Dells, it's pretty sticky. It's, you put your foot down and, and you, you're pretty stable. That's not what this rock formation was. It was actually known, this rock formation, as slippery. The second, on the other side, the word there, first is bozes, then sena. Sena means thorny or brush, brambles. So you've got slippery rocks and thorny brambles kind of as the path to victory for Jonathan. And Jonathan is fighting one of the strong forces of the time, the Philistines, a certain garrison there. And he says to his armor bearer, let's the two of us go up secretly and approach them. And we immediately think, if we don't know the rest of the chapter, this is not going to go well. Well, let's keep reading. Verses 6 through 15. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. That idea of the Lord working will come up three other, or two other times in this paragraph. That's, that's a key to understand the paragraph. Jonathan is trusting in the Lord being on their side. So, continuing in verse 6, It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. I don't care if it's the two of us against them. We've got the Lord on our side. The Lord's not hindered by numbers. Verse 7, And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. That's a good follower right there. Verse 8, Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say to us, Come up to us, then we, will go, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hands, and this shall be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing, or we will teach you a lesson. That's the, 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 what the phrase is referring to. Come up to us, we'll teach you a lesson. Jonathan views that as a sign, all right, we should go. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And the first strike which Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within as, as it were half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp in the field and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. The idea that Jonathan and his armor bearer defeat this group of men, this, this small group compared to the rest of the Philistine military, but still a much larger group than two people, the fact that they defeat these people and that the earth then quakes at that time shows the Lord is on their side. And Jonathan fully believes that. The Lord's on our side, let's go. And if you were writing a book on military strategy, you wouldn't include this as a picture of what to do. But if you trust in the Lord, there's a certain risk that you take in life. There are certain ventures that you do knowing that the Lord's on your side. And this is what Jonathan does. 
And again, notice where his faith comes from. It's not, hey, I know how to wield a sword. I know how to shoot an arrow. It's, it's not in any of that. I told you three times in this paragraph, these words are given. The Lord will work for us. Verse 6. Verse 10. The Lord has given them into our hand. And verse 12. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And then what do we see in verse 15? They, 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 they have this defeat, they're successful, and the earth quakes. The Lord does that. The Lord shows that that is actually true. The Lord has given them into their hand. Verses 16 to 23, we'll end this first point with these verses. And the watchman of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who has gone from us. We're two guys short. What's happening here? And when they counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. There's, you can study this on your own. It's probably not referring so much to the ark of God as the ephod, the, the, the linen vest the priest would wear. We know Saul had with him a priest. We saw that earlier on in this chapter. Later on, they're going to they're gonna be using the ephod. So this is most likely the ephod, not the ark of God. Okay, translation issue there. Again, studied on your own. So bring the ark of God or the ephod. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. So did the ephod. Verse 19, now when Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, and who had gone up with them to the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. What's happening here? Jonathan and his armor-bearer are gone. Saul and the guys are doing a count. Okay, 51, 52, 53, 596, 597, 598. Who's missing? Jonathan and his armor-bearer. So Saul says, bring the ephod. Something's wrong. Bring the ephod. The ephod uh, was this vest, as I told you, had the 12 stones representing the 12 uh, tribes of Israel. On it were the Urim and Thummim, which is a way to distinguish what the Lord's will was. It's think of today tossing a coin, casting lots. It would help them in decision making. The ephod was the priest saying, the Lord's presence is here. The Lord who, who oversees all of these 12 tribes is here. He will help you make a decision. So that's what Saul is doing. He calls the priest. We know he had a priest with him. And he's saying, we got two guys short. Something's going on. We need to make a decision as to what to do. And before they can even consult the Urim and Thummim, they understand that there is something going on in the garrison of the Philistines. So Saul tells his armor bearers to, to withhold his hand. Hold on. Stop. Withdraw your hand. No need to consult with God is what's happening. There's something happening over there. Let's go get them. That's interesting. So Saul's going to go through the motions and, and do the right thing, consult with God as to what to do, but something grabs his attention and the Philistines are there. And we know that the Lord intended for his people to sacrifice, to pray to him before they went into battle. 
So instead of listening to God, Saul's about to do that, but oh, time's of the essence, hold the prayers, let's go get them. That's what's happening here. So Saul's about to listen to what God says. He stops that process. They go after the Philistines, and the Philistines are actually in such, a, such an uproar because of what Jonathan and his uh, armor bearer have done that they are attacking one another. There's such chaos and confusion. And you might think, well, if I were the Philistines, I wouldn't do that. I mean, I just look and see the guy's uniform and think, oh, you're on my team. Why in the world is this happening? Well, it's important to understand that at some point before this, some Hebrews, some people who belonged to Israel, actually left and went over with the Philistines. They trusted in their power, and they were among the Philistine army. And so what happens here when Jonathan and his armor bearer are defeating this particular garrison, you've got some of the Hebrews thinking, wait a second, we're going to fight with our people again. And so there's this chaos within the Philistine camp. There's the Hebrews who they thought were on their side now fighting against them. You'll see actually later on in the book, towards the end of the book, the Philistines basically say, hey, we're not doing that again. No Hebrews allowed in here to fight with us. So the Philistines are fighting one another. There's tension in their camp, and Saul, forget what God says. Here's an opportunity. Let's go. That's what's happening there. But notice why this all came about. Certainly it's because of God's power, and his love for Israel and his grace to them. But, but what, who did he use? Who, humanly speaking, initiated that? Jonathan. And why? Because Jonathan trusted in Yahweh, trusted in the power of God. What do we learn from that? The title of our first point, Faith in God Brings Victory. And let me say this as clear as I can. God wasn't just powerful here in 1100 B.C., The same God is alive today. The same God loves His people today. The same God indwells us with His Holy Spirit. God is still for His people today. If you're one of God's children, you need to hear, God is still for you. He is for you. Sometimes we we don't really believe that He is. Again, we know intellectually that He is, but we don't feel like He's for us. Faith in God, faith in who God is, faith in God's power, faith in God's will to be on your side. Faith in God brings victory. The people of God at all times, the people of God are to have faith in God when dealing with their enemies. I think, again, for whatever reason, I've been brought back to the upper room a number of times as I see Jesus talking to disciples about the difficulties of life to come. And in that upper room discourse, Jesus says this, 11 centuries after this account in 1 Samuel 14, 11 centuries after that, Jesus urges his disciples to pray and God will hear their prayers. They're going to face a difficult time. They're going to face trial and they're going to face persecution. They're going to face a number of challenges. Pray to God and he will listen. This is something for the people of God today to understand. God is on your side. God It enables you to gain spiritual victories. God indwells you. You have everything you need for life and godliness. You have all the spiritual riches of Christ. We have the power of God on our side. The God of heaven and earth, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who sustains the heaven and earth, loves his people and he's for them. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Or is this just something for this book? Or is it true today? 
I think you believe that. I hope you do. Let me read to you John 16, verses 23 to 24. Jesus says this, In that day you will ask nothing of me. He's talking about a future day when Jesus returns again. There's no more enemies, no more war, no more sorrow. In that day you won't need anything from me. I'm here, everything's solved, everything's fixed. In that day, you'll ask nothing from me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask, and he's now talking about this current time, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. One thing Jesus does in his earthly ministry is he compels people to pray to him. He compels people to ask the Father for things. He actually models this in his prayer, and the disciples learn from him on what it means to ask for, the, ask for things from the Father. He actually models it in Luke 11 when he gives an illustration of, of knocking on a neighbor's door and needing some food, and, and even your neighbor, even your friend who, who says, it's, it's, I'll give it to you in the morning, go, go, I mean, it's the middle of the night, go back, go back. If you're persistent and you knock and you knock and you knock, finally they'll open to you and give you the bread. And that passage isn't, te- isn't teaching, hey, be persistent when you pray to God. That's not what that passage is teaching. Because then it says, but, but God is a father. It's, God's not just a friend that you're annoying. God's a father. What child, if he asked for something from the father, wouldn't be given it from the father? If the child has a need, he asks and the father loves to give. Think of you that are parents. If, if your child has a need that, that, that you know they need, they understand they understand that, uh, what's needed for a certain thing, and you see that thing as a, as a good thing to pursue. You want to give them what they need. Dad, you know, I, I've been such a bad student for so long, and, and now it's my sophomore year, and uh, I really want to work hard at school and, and study hard and get good grades. And you go, yeah, okay. And Dad, I need some flashcards. Okay. I'll do it. When, when it's dad, I need a 57th video game and a 57th, you know, other thing. Or I don't know that I'm going to give you that. But when they ask for something they truly need and it lines up with your desire that's a good desire, yes, the flashcards, the tutor, whatever I can give you for a good pursuit, I want to give you. And that's what the Bible, that's the language of the Scripture in, in Luke 11. It's just ask, ask, ask. The Father gives. And so I see Jonathan here with this great faith, and he trusts in the fact that God is for his people. And that is something, again, not reserved for 1 Samuel 14. That's something reserved for Kenyon Bible Church of Prescott. How bold are your prayers? Do your prayers reflect the fact that you believe God's on your side? And I'm not asking for things, I'm not telling you to ask for things that he doesn't promise. God, heal me of every sickness and disease so that I live to be 157 years old. He doesn't promise that. He does promise healing one way or the other, either in this life or when He takes you home to heaven. He will heal you, but, but His timing is based on His desire and His will. But how about asking for things that are according to His will? God loves to answer the things prayed according to His will. So you see in Jonathan, a great faith and a trust in God, and I'm just encouraging you as a church, be confident in the power of God and the will of God for the people of God. Let me ask you a couple questions just to kind of get your mind going in terms of, am I really trusting the Lord? Am I really 
having faith like this, or am I just kind of going through the motions and not really trusting that God will care for all the things I need? Let me ask you some questions. Do you intellectually know that God is for you and powerful? I think many of you would say yes. Let me ask a second question, a follow-up to that one. Do you pray accordingly? Do you pray bold prayers? Spurgeon said in talking about prayer meetings, he said, one of the things that's most discouraging in a prayer meeting is for people who don't pray bold prayers. This is the God of heaven and earth who's our Father, who loves to give His children good gifts. Pray boldly. Brothers and sisters, I'm asking you to pray boldly. Storm the throne room of God. He's your Father. He wants to give you the things that are according to His will. I'm not some prosperity preacher saying, hey, go ask Him for a million bucks. It's yours. Claim it. That's garbage. He promises suffering, but He also promises to give you what you need in suffering. He promises to give you what you need in this difficult life. He promises to be with you. If you need spiritual resources, they are yours. Ask Him for them. Ask Him for souls that you love. Ask Him for, for the strength to serve other people. Ask Him for the strength to, to make a difference in another believer's life. Ask Him for spiritual children and grandchildren. Ask Him for things that are according to His will. Ask Him, do you pray according to what you know to be true, that God is powerful and He is for His people? Do you take risks for the Lord? Do you take risks for the Lord? I'm not talking about going skydiving. Uh, not, not those kind of risks. Do you take actual risks for the Lord? Or do you have what I call this prideful humility? Sounds weird, doesn't it? Well, I'm just nobody. Yeah, welcome to the club. None of us are. Jonathan's not trusting in his own ingenuity and his own power. He's trusting in the fact that God is for them and he's powerful. Don't have that, that fake humility that's really proud. I'm nobody, so what's God going to do? That's the perfect time to try something for the Lord. That's the perfect time to sign up and go teach chapel at the gospel rescue mission. Well, I've never done that before. Great! God's all-powerful. That's the perfect time to go and invite your neighbor over for dinner and to form a relationship with them and to, to make Christ known to them. Well, I'm just not very social. Great! Ask the Lord for strength and help. What about the call to, to help others grow in the faith? Well, I just don't know very much. Great! Ask the Lord to, as you study the Bible this year like never before, to reveal things to you that you can then pass along. Are you taking risks for the Lord? You look at the early church and they, they knew God was on their side. They prayed to Him and they went after it. Not because they were wonderful, but because they knew God was for them and He was powerful. Finally, actually two more questions. One, do your desires line up with God's? Well, I've tried to pray and the Lord doesn't answer my prayers. Is it a James 4 situation? You ask to spend it on your own desires? Are you praying according to the will of God or just for things that help your life become more comfortable or easy? Are you jealous for the kingdom advancement? Are you jealous for the will of God to be done? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's the first prayer. I want you to be known, Father, as I start this prayer. These prayers, everything that comes after this, I want your name to be hallowed. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Are you praying that way or are you praying just for your desires? 
So are your desires lining up with God's? Next question. These are just, again, just some application questions that you think through. How much am I trusting the Lord for, for spiritual victories? Here's a question. How do you want to invade enemy territory this year? How do you want to invade enemy territory this year? Again, we know that this world lies in the hand of the evil one. And we also know that there are a group of people on this planet, a, a relatively small group compared to the rest of the population, there's a group of people on this planet who have the presence of Jesus Christ inside of them, who have the love of Jesus Christ inside of them, and they are promised to achieve victories as they go out and invade enemy territory, and we're those people. So are we going to live 2022 just the way our unbelieving neighbor does? Hope the doctor's appointment goes well. I hope my grandson gets the job. I hope my wife's nice to me. I hope we get to go to that dinner next week. We should have different hopes. We've got a different heart. <laughs> We've got a different future. We've got forgiveness. We've got the power of the Holy Spirit. We should have different hopes. I see in Jonathan, I see in 1 Samuel 14, a sweet providence of God to give us this passage on this day. This is a man who trusts in the power of God, the victory of God, and he goes after it. Some of you might not be New Year's resolution people, that's fine, but it is a new year. How do you want to invade enemy territory this year? Is there some sin that you want to be better at overcoming by the grace of God? Is there some way that you want to help others and be more faithful in that? Is there your family maybe that you want to lead more faithfully? Maybe 2021 wasn't a great year for leadership, your leadership and your family, but 2022 is a new year. Remember, there's grace and forgiveness for 2021, but there's also strength for 2022. Do you maybe want to speak up for Christ more this year? Make more friends for the purpose of eternity? What is it? I would encourage you to have goals. Jesus had goals. Set his face toward Jerusalem. Paul had goals. I want to get to Spain. Can you help me get there? Christians have goals, and they achieve them by the grace of God, and they aim for things. I want to raise more leaders in the church. I want to see someone come to Christ, and, I, and if, it would, if it would please him to use my efforts, Lord, use my efforts. What are your goals? Do you have goals for so many other things? Another gun, another car, another quilt, another thing? You're like, whoa, hold on, now you're meddling. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I'm pastoring, friends. <laughs> you have goals for so many things. Do you have spiritual goals that you want to achieve? Again, by the grace of God. He gives victory. He desires to give victory. We're the people right now in human history. Us and our brothers and sisters in Nigeria and Kenya and Italy and wherever it may be, we are the people to make a difference. We're the people to bring the gospel to this world. We're the people to encourage, to love like God loves. We're the people to represent God. So what are the ways that you want to invade enemy territory this year? I think this would be a great question to ask right after the service to each other. Well, that'd be awkward to talk about spiritual things after the service. Maybe that's part of our problem. Ask, how do you want to invade the kingdom of darkness this year? How can I pray for you? That'd be a great thing to ask after the service. So faith in God brings victory. That's what we learn from verses 1 through 23. 
Let's look secondly, verses 24 to 46, failure in leadership harms others. Here's another leadership lesson. Failure in leadership harms others. Let's look at the paragraph, verses 24 to 30, and notice Saul's harmful leadership, really, of the Israelite army. Verse 24, and the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to, the, to his mouth and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found? For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. We haven't defeated them to the extent that we could because we all have been lacking strength because we've been not been allowed to eat. That's what Jonathan says. I want to point something out to you. Notice verse 24 again. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. Back in chapter 13, verse 6, it says that the people of Israel were hard-pressed because of the Philistines. Now, the people of Israel are hard-pressed because their own king has put them in a precarious situation. The king's meant to be the one to relieve them from the pressure and to lead them into victory, but now he's making things difficult for them. Why? Because, again, to Saul, this seems like a religious thing to do. I'm proclaiming a fast until the evening. We're not going to eat as a way to, to obtain the Lord's favor. That is not commanded in the Pentateuch. Moses never commanded the people of God to fast before a military incursion. Saul's going extra biblical here. And it's something that hurts his people. We're told, again, that the people were faint in verse 28. Verse 31, we haven't read this yet, but verse 31, notice that, they struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ahijon, and the people were very faint. So they did achieve a victory, but it wasn't all that they could. They were still very tired and very faint. They needed calories. They needed sustenance, and they weren't allowed to eat because their leader thought that, that was a good idea. And Jonathan, again, the example in our passage, Jonathan saying, my father troubled the land today. This was a blunder. This is an error. <coughs> Jonathan gives his commentary there in verse 29. My father's troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of his honey. You all could have been invigorated too. We could have had a greater victory. But my father made the decision that he made. Verse 31, they struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. 
They're not supposed to do that. And the people ate them with the blood. They're not supposed to do that. That is in the Pentateuch. But, but let me pause and ask this question. Why were the people tempted to sin? Because their leader led them into temptation. That's what's happening here. Verse 33, then they told Saul, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, disperse yourself among the people and say to them, let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. So Saul leads them into this great temptation because he wouldn't allow them to eat beforehand. And now they're so hungry, they're tempted once they find the spoil, they just start killing the animals there and eating them right there with the blood. That is a sin against God. And again, the reason they were brought to that point was because of Saul's leadership. But then he builds an altar and says, okay, we're going to do this the right way, drain the blood, kill him on this altar, and eat. So he makes up for it in a sense right here, but make no mistake, he's the one that led them into this sin. He is. Saul is. There are failures in leadership here. Verses 36 to 46, let's finish this second point. Let's notice now Saul's prepared to execute his son because of a foolish oath that he, Saul, made. Verse 36, then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, so the priest, the, the one who's right now in this case, it's not Samuel, but the one who now in this case is speaking for God. The priest said, let us draw near to God here. So Saul's saying, let's go, let's get him, let's finish this off. And the priest is like, whoa, whoa, whoa hold on. Let's ask the Lord what he would have us do. Verse 37, and Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he, God, did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord, God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord, God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thumim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, cast a lot between me and my son, Jonathan, and Jonathan was taken. So you see what's happening here. Saul's saying, why, is, why isn't God answering? Is it because of me and Jonathan or is it because of this whole group of people over here? Okay, Jonathan and I will be over here. Group of people will be over here. If the lot is cast and, a certain, and it ends up being the people, then we know it's the people. The people are the reason God's not answering. But what happened is the lot was cast and it fell on Jonathan and Saul. One of them are the reason that God's not answering. Verse 43, then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I'll die. You see the nobility there of Jonathan. He didn't say, I didn't know about the oath. It was a stupid oath anyway. He just said, hey, I did it. I wasn't aware. I mean, I, I, I did it. It was me, I'll die. 
Verse 44, and Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. What a great phrase. He has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Saul had the ability to dictate a curse, but he couldn't enact it. The people rescued Jonathan from this curse, and they say, no way, this is not right. He's the one that led us into this victory. He's not going to die. So in God's providence, the people rescued Jonathan from this foolish leadership of his father, and Jonathan's life is spared. Grace of God. But you still are seeing the foolishness of Saul. He was even willing to execute his own son over this. So failure in leadership harms others. His own son, his people who are not allowed to eat, and yet God gives the Philistines into the hands of Israel, doesn't he? God's gracious, and the people of God are victorious despite Saul's military failures. I want to highlight a couple of problems here just a little bit more clearly uh, in Saul just so that we can learn from this. Uh, just two problems to speak of here in these verses. Notice Saul's form of religion. Saul engages in all the things he's supposed to engage in, sometimes, sometimes not exactly how it's supposed to be done, but, but he's trying to seek the Lord's favor. He uses biblical language. I mean, the idea of a fast. Oh, the fast sounds great, but it actually put his people in harm's way. And it was not a fast the Lord ever commanded. Saul says to build an altar. Well, that, that's good. Earlier, Saul said that, that a priest should be consulted before they went to battle. And all of a sudden, they know that now's the time to strike. Well, hold on. Never mind that. Let's go. You see this form of religion with Saul, but evidently it lacks some power. And it's, all, it's almost as if what we saw earlier in 1 Samuel is happening. There's this kind of religious superstition. If we just bring the ark over here, then we'll achieve this victory. That's religious superstition. And it's alive and well today. As I mentioned earlier on as when we were studying this book, we can do the same types of things. We go through the religious motions and kind of expect if I do these things, God's going to bless me. But our heart's not worshiping. We're just... If I show up to church, I mean, that's a good thing, right? God, please bless me. I mean, I'm coming to church. Uh, why do you read your Bible in the morning? I'm reading through. I read it in a year. Okay, God, send, send the rain of blessing down. Are you worshiping in all the things God calls you to do? Corporate worship? Are you worshiping as you meditate on the Word? Are you confessing sin and communing with God and enjoying His forgiveness? Or are you just going through the motions and kind of expecting, hey, all right, God, I rub the, rub the lamp. Where's the genie now? That's kind of where Saul's at. He does some religious things, but there's something about his heart. And what we learned last week, God's going to give the kingdom to someone whose heart beats for the Lord, whose heart is after the Lord's heart. Evidently, Saul's isn't. So you can be doing a lot of religious things, but your heart is not in it. 
It's not done out of a heart of worship. You're just going through the motions. So, in whatever ways that God has placed you as a leader or an influencer or uh, just a, a peer who can help influence another peer, in whatever ways God has put people around you, are they seeing you press all the right Christian buttons, do all the right Christian things, go through the Christian motions, or are they seeing you live as a worshiper of God? Are you actively worshiping and trusting in God? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you come to church? Why are you part of a church, better yet? Why? Why do you partake of the Lord's table? Well, you guys tell me to. It's not a good answer. Why do you do those things? Let me say it this way. Point number two was failure in leadership harms others. You, you can say that the opposite is true also. We can greatly benefit others when we worship the Lord from the heart. When you live as a worshiper, when you do the things God has called you to do because you're worshiping, that has a spillover effect on other people. That benefits your kids, your grandkids, your friends. When you live as a worshiper from the heart, not just go through the religious motions, when you live as a worshiper, it benefits others. When you commune with God in prayer, that benefits others. When you live for the glory of Christ and fight sin and seek righteousness, that benefits your children. That benefits your friends, your neighbors. We greatly benefit others when we worship the Lord from the heart. You don't get the sense that Saul's doing these things because his heart is worshiping the Lord. You get the sense from Jonathan, but not from Saul. Another aspect of Saul's problematic leadership to notice here in the second point is Saul's legalism. I'll call it Saul's legalism. This fast that he enacts is not, again, as I've said, is not something commanded by Scripture. Never let a personal preference become a precept that burdens others. Saul's got a personal preference for a fast. Okay, Saul, fast on your own if you want. But then he commands it for other people. God didn't command that, and it ends up hurting others. Be careful of this, friends. Those of you who are discipling others, which should be all of you, when you're influencing other people, giving advice to other people, be careful of making your own preference into a precept for other people. I'll give you an example. Uh, you've got, uh, uh, let's say you're a man, you're discipling, or you've got a friend who's another man, and, and this friend's struggling with, in his marriage, and so you're trying to help him in his marriage. And so you say, what you need to do is go on a date night every single week, and that's what you need to do to help your marriage. Now, in and of itself, is going on a date with your wife a bad thing? No, it's a wonderful thing. I pray for more of them. It's a great thing. But if that's the counsel, just know that that counsel is not actually commanded in the Scripture. Could it be a good thing? Sure, it could be. What, what is commanded of your friend, this struggling husband? What is commanded of him? Well, to live with his wife in an understanding way, to love her, to nourish her in the Word, to provide for her. Those are biblical commands. How do those biblical commands get obeyed by you? Maybe one of the ways you obey them is by having a time where you go on a date with your wife once a week. 
And by the way, all your kids are out of the house, so you don't need to pay for a babysitter. And so it's kind of easy to go on a date with your wife once a week. But this guy who you're talking to, he's got seven kids. And it's not always easy to find a babysitter for seven kids. But, but, but you've told him, go on a date with your wife once a week, and that's going to help your marriage. Well, that might not be the best advice. Here's better counsel. Friend, what, are, what does the Bible call you to? Well, I'm supposed to live with my wife in an understanding way. Okay, good. In light of your situation in your home, how can you do that more faithfully? Well, I can be more intentional in this way or that way. Good, that's good. And it might not be a date night once a week for that guy. But do you see how we can often make our personal preferences date night once a week? Hey, you've got to do that. And we actually place a heavier burden on this guy that's struggling. So now the burden becomes, not only am I not being a great husband, now I've got this extra burden. I've got to find a way to get a babysitter for seven kids once a week because that's what's going to help my marriage grow. No, no. Be careful of letting a personal preference become a precept that burdens other people. This is what Saul does. And it is a temptation for all those people who give advice. It's a temptation for Christian friends, Christian parents, to go beyond what the Scriptures say in order to try to get someone to obey the Scripture. The Pharisees were perfect at that. That's called legalism. Be careful of that, friends. So a couple lessons. First, faith in God brings victory. Second, failure in leadership harms others. And third and finally, final evaluations will be made. There's a final evaluation made about Saul's leadership, and it's going to surprise you. We've been going through 1 Samuel 14, and we're seeing Saul fail, Jonathan succeed. Saul fail, Jonathan assess something rightly. Saul fail, and then we're going to come to this final evaluation, and Saul is seen as this great military hero. We kind of scratch our head and go, what's up with that? Verse 47, when Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them, Houston Astros, okay? And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malchishua, and the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab, and the name of the younger was Michal, and the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaz, and the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Really interesting conclusion here. We hear of all Saul's victories, and there were many of them, right? Then we hear of Saul's family. This is kind of Saul's legacy for now. This kind of summary statement of his victories and his family. And Jonathan was one of those in his family. But notice the very end the very last part of verse 52, and when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. That's not a stupid thing to do. You see someone good at something, hey, I'm with this guy. <laughs> and Jonathan was one of those guys, his own son. Jonathan was a great 
military leader, a great truster in the Lord, and Saul was connected to him, and Saul would do this. That, that's not foolish, but it's giving us a little peek there into the, into the reality that all these victories weren't just because Saul was so wonderful. God put other people in his path. Again, why in this passage, humanly speaking, did Israel succeed? Not because of Saul, because of Jonathan. But Saul gets the credit. He's the king. And so this is what I call the obituary summary of Saul's life. In the obituary, no weaknesses are ever put in there. You know, Jim was a a, a happy man, a giving man, a wonderful man. He often lost his temper around his grandchildren. That's not in the obituary, okay? Just the first part is. This is kind of like the obituary summary. Saul achieved great victories. He routed people. But the obituary summary isn't what the Lord judges by. The Lord knows everything. The Lord judges based on what is in the light and what's hidden in the darkness. The Lord judges what people can see and also the thoughts and intents of the heart. Here we're given a picture simply of Saul's military victories. There's more to Saul than just his military victories, and we'll see throughout the rest of the book his failures. But notice that final evaluations will be made. We see in this final evaluation, and, and as it, we're told of Saul's victories, you see the grace of God here. I mean, all of these failures should lead to defeat after defeat after defeat. So you ask the question, well, then why did, weren't they defeated all these times? Because God's gracious, and He keeps His Word to His people, and He leads them. God's gracious. God was gracious to Saul, and God is still gracious to us. Again, God's grace isn't old-fashioned. God's grace isn't something that was there then. And then today, where is God's grace? God's grace is here today. Where is God's grace for us today? That's the question I have. If God's gracious to Saul, even as bad of a leader as he was, where is God gracious today? I'd encourage you to look at Titus 2 as we close. Look at Titus 2. This is where God's grace is today. Titus 2, verse 11, Paul tells Titus of God's grace. Titus 2, 11, for the grace of God has appeared. Okay, the grace of God is here. It's shown up. How? Bringing salvation for all people. There's an example of God's grace today. Salvation is available to people all over the planet. That's gracious of God to offer. The planet does not deserve God's grace. You and I don't deserve God's grace. But listen, here's where grace shows up today. Salvation's available. And we have it, don't we, as Christians? The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. But grace isn't done. Grace didn't just save you. Grace also does something else. Look at verse 12. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. The training is referring to what grace does. Training us, grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, 
the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace trains us to fight sin, pursue righteousness as we wait for the thing, for the person that we're waiting for, the hope that we have. We're waiting for the coming of Jesus Christ. In the meantime, he's been gracious to save us and he's training us. Grace trains. Grace saves. That's how we often think of it. Grace saves, but grace also trains. And I'll give you a good example of grace training you. The last 45 minutes, just by us putting our noses in 1 Samuel 14 and learning, look at Jonathan's faith. I need to hear about Jonathan's faith again. I need to hear more about Jonathan's God, who he has faith in. That's a little example of grace training you today. You were reminded of the power of God and the desire for God to work victories for his people. You were also reminded of bad leadership Maybe as I was going through 1 Samuel 14 and you were thinking of Saul's failures, you were thinking of maybe some of your own failures. That's a way that you're being trained this morning. It's a way that I've been being trained all week long as I've been meditating on this passage. What's the Lord teaching me here by Saul's failures? Grace didn't just save you back in 1972. It also trains you today by his word. So the grace of God is seen by looking at Saul's leadership and saying, Saul deserved, or Saul received a better commendation at the end of 1 Samuel 14 than he really deserved. That's all of us. We, our final, the final statement in our lives, if you're a Christian, the final statement is going to be that you stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Just like Saul didn't deserve his final commendation, we don't deserve ours. But our final commendation by God is, you are righteous in my son. We're like Saul in that sense. We don't deserve an ending as good as 1 Samuel 14 gives Saul. We don't deserve it, but we get it, don't we? By the grace of God. If you're not a Christian today, I want to ask you to think about the words that I just read. Listen to them again. Titus 2.13, we are waiting for, this is speaking of what Christians are waiting for, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, if you're not a Christian, for the last 45 minutes I've been going through a sermon largely based on Saul's failures. And what this is showing us, what the Bible shows us is Israel wanted a king, Aha, we got one. Saul, he's handsome, he's tall, but then he's also a failure in so many ways. That's really the story of leadership in a broken world. Your father, your, your biological father, is not a perfect father to you. If you're not a Christian, maybe a Christian friend that you have is not a perfect friend to you. Your spouse might be wonderful and great. They're not perfect. None of us are. People, people have a longing to be led well. We do. That's why we get so wrapped up in presidential elections and so wrapped up in who's my teacher going to be next week or next year. We get so wrapped up in what's my boss going to be like. We get so wrapped up in that because in our hearts there's a built-in desire to be led well. And there are, by the grace of God, good leaders in the world, but there are no perfect leaders in the world. And so in 1 Samuel, you see a failure in leadership 
one after another. And then we get to David and we think, aha, and he's a pretty wonderful leader with some moral failings. And then we come to Jesus Christ. And you see in Jesus Christ one with perfect power, one with perfect justice that He promises to give one day on the whole world, one with perfect vision, He knows everything, and one who also is called the Good Shepherd. He is the perfect leader. And so if you're not a Christian today, I want to ask you to consider and learn about and read about Jesus Christ. I would invite you to read the Gospel of Mark and read about Jesus' power and also His heart. Please, read the Gospel of Mark. If you're not sure about your relationship with Jesus, read the Gospel of Mark. And remember this question I'm going to ask you, okay? Read the Gospel of Mark, and at the very end, answer this question. What is lacking in Jesus Christ for you? What is lacking? I think you'll find that there's nothing lacking in Him for you. So I invite you to take time to look at what the Bible would call the perfect leader, the perfect king, the perfect priest, the perfect shepherd, the perfect savior, the perfect master. He's the perfect one. He died and rose again for his people to give them life. That says something about his power and his love. That's the one you're looking for, Jesus Christ. Christian, I'll end with these words to you. We've seen a failure in leadership, and if you're like me, as we go through 1 Samuel 14, you see too many connections between Saul's leadership and your own. But I'll remind you, your God is a gracious God. Your God saves failed leaders. Your God forgives repentant failed leaders. And the grace of God, here's some good news, also trains. It's a new day. It's a new day. It's a new day for your leadership. May the grace of God help you lead your family, your friends, your class, your workers, whatever you have. May the grace of God equip you to lead like Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful that grace saves us, and we're also thankful that grace trains us. So I'm asking you, Lord, to take the truths of 1 Samuel 14 and connect them to our hearts, train us for righteousness, train us to live as Christ to the people around us. May we have the faith of Jonathan. May you give us an overwhelming trust in your goodness and in your power. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.